You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. Hey everybody, Ken Davenport. Before we get to the podcast, something very important to talk to you about. If you haven't heard, this Thursday, December 10th, we're making a little theater history. We're live streaming my production of Daddy Long Legs straight from the Davenport Theater on 45th Street. 8 o'clock this Thursday, December 10th. DaddyLongLegsMusical.com backslash live stream. Register there, sign up, tune in, and do me a favor. Tell everybody you know. Because I have a feeling if you're listening to this podcast, you believe that live streaming and the digital distribution of theatrical content could be a big part in our future. Well, the best way to get more shows live streamed and more shows shown in movie theaters all across the country, just like the Met or the National Theater Live, is that we show people that tons of folks from all over the world will tune in. The more eyeballs I get on this live stream of Daddy Long Legs, the better the chance of more shows getting streamed in the future. So do me a favor, tune in. And now on to the podcast. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kentdavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kentdavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Producer's Perspective podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Now, obviously, a lot of the chatter here on the podcast, as well as on my blog, is about what happens here on Broadway. But we often forget that what happens here on Broadway ripples through the rest of the country and the rest of the world in productions at theaters of all sizes. And that's a huge business. And that's the business of my guest today. Welcome to the podcast, the president of Music Theater International, Mr. Drew Cohen. Welcome, Drew. Thanks, Ken. So just to give you an example of how big this business is, I just toured the office here at MTI. It took like an hour and a half because the place is so big. But Drew, a lot of people out there uh, may not know exactly what it is a music licensing company does. So here's my, my Wichita cocktail question. I want you to imagine you're at a cocktail party in like East Wichita with a bunch of people who've never heard of the theater before. And one of them says, what do you do? What would you say? I would say what we do is I work for Music Theater International, which is a licensing house that represents the rights to Broadway shows. There's usually a moment where they get excited and think that I'll be able to get them tickets for the show, that we are producing the show. That's not the case. So I dispel that right away and say, but we represent the show for all productions other than Broadway. And of course, you know, in a more general sense for your listeners, it's everything other than first class productions generally. Um, So we don't license the show in the West End. We don't license the show in New York. But for anyone who wants to do a show that has played on Broadway or in the West End in their own theater, which could be a professional theater, it could be a community theater, it could be a high school, a church group, or even a summer camp, they would come to us as the author's representative to get the rights to put on that show. And the response that usually comes from that is, oh, people have to pay for that when they when they do a high school production? Sometimes when I say yes, they do, there's sometimes there's outrage <laughs> that, that, what do you mean? They can't just do uh, Guys and Dolls for free? And I point out, I said, look, they pay for their software, they pay for the books, they pay for other intellectual property. And it's, uh, you know, it's one of the challenges actually is uh, explaining to people that yes, these are property rights of the authors who have worked many years in most cases on these shows, and they deserve to be compensated when the, uh, when the property is used. They can do Shakespeare for free if they want. But... That's right. That's right. And authors have often said, you know, if you, if you don't want to pay, that's frankly why uh, shows like um, Christmas Carol get done every year. I mean, it's a great, obviously a great piece of work, but there's no, there's no royalties to be paid on that or Shakespeare. So That cocktail question actually is a difficult one for your uh, job because... When I do that, people actually, many people I talk to have never been to Broadway before. I say, I'm a Broadway producer, and they don't have any clue. But most of the people went to high school in this country, and most high schools have drama departments or do a musical. Is it is it all of them? Do you know what the percentage is? Um, I don't know what the percentage is. There are about somewhere around 30,000 public high schools in the country. 
we've done business with close to 25,000 of them at one time or another. So most schools have some kind of arts program. I mean, it's a shame that even with, you know, the regular talk about arts programs being uh, cut all the time, there are many schools that have never had an arts program. And MTI actually does a lot of outreach to introduce arts programs to uh, to those schools for self-serving purposes, but also for, you know, the good of the community. But the good news is for authors and for companies like MTI, there is a tradition in this country of there being a spring musical uh, at the in high schools uh, or a spring show. So even schools that have a modest budget allocated, they'll often find a way to do the show either on a shoestring budget or a lot of times it'll be that the PTA will raise the money outside of the budget. So even in, in difficult times like in 2008 and 2009, where we expected that we would have a, a decline in the number of productions, we found that um, while schools expressed to us their financial difficulties, they said, but we're figuring out a way. The kids are raising money by doing a car wash or they're doing money by selling T-shirts or something like that. Once they, they experience the culture of having uh, a musical or a show in their schools, they're, they're reluctant to give it up. So 30,000 high schools across the country, and you've done business with about 25,000 of them. So that means there's about 20,000 or so high school productions every year? Um, I wouldn't know how many there are total because there are other companies that do what we do. But yeah, there should be uh, around that, that amount every, every year. Um, and, and also, one, one thing that has happened in the last, I would say, 10 years or so, is there's been a, a growth of uh, non-school organizations that are putting on musicals. So it's after-school programs. It could be like Ken's Backyard Theater. And, you know, it's an after-school program, the way you might have sports after-school programs that are outside of the school organization. There are these mom-and-pop things that might be in a shopping mall. They might be in a vacant performing arts center or empty movie theater during matinees when they're not showing movies. They'll rent out that space and put on their own shows. So we're seeing non-school, non-institutional organizations who are uh, stepping up and, and, and benefiting from the fact that musicals have become more popular. I'm going to have to dig in and see, see if I can figure out the gross of high school musicals in the, in the year and compare it to Broadway. That's a lot. That's a lot of tickets. Uh, so tell us about your path. How did you get to be sitting in, in the big chair you're in now as the oh. president of MTI? Um, my background is a little bit varied. I used to, I always say I have a checkered past. Uh, I worked as a lawyer for several years at a big New York law firm, then transitioned to the music business and worked for a startup record company called Glass Note Records, which was a, a startup founded by the former president of Universal Records, Chrysalis Records, and he had worked at EMI as well. After working there for a few years, I decided to go back and get my business degree because I realized I had not been practicing law anymore. I was just doing general management and really wanted to formalize my business training or my business uh, education. I always say I went back late in life because I was about 29 when I went back to business school. Now that uh, that doesn't seem like so late in life, but uh, did that. Worked in the world of finance for a while, actually doing some investing for a wealthy family. Uh, unfortunately, it wasn't my family that was the wealthy family, so uh, I continued there. But uh, it was after that that Freddie Gershon, who's the CEO of MTI, who I had known for many years, I'd known him for about nine years, approached me and thought that it was a good opportunity, a good time for the company to bring in someone who had, A, the legal background to you know in-house serve the legal function, but also to work on the business development and strategic planning for the future of the company. You know, as Freddie always points out, the, the life of a copyright is much longer than the life of an author. And certainly, as he always says, longer than his life, he says. Uh, and the authors who we serve um, need to know that there is a long-term future. It's not just about one person. Freddie was, is, it was and is very much the face of MTI and, uh, and has pioneered so much in this business from Broadway Junior to, you know, I think I give, I give him uh, most of the credit for, you know, a lot of the growth of the licensing industry because he uh, he saw the opportunity to have a Johnny Appleseed approach of introducing musicals to the younger kids, knowing that when they get older and get to high school or become adults, they'll be performers in shows, but they'll also be part of your audience that now will go to see a show because, oh, I was in a show once. I know what this is. You know, you mentioned people not knowing what Broadway was. Well, a lot of people don't even know what the local theater scene is. And if they don't have a program in their middle school, they're certainly not going to pick it up in high school. 
and that is that's uh, been a big part of 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 the growth of this industry in, in our view. I met Freddie. He thought it was a good idea to uh, to sort of inject MTI with some a, a, a younger generation who could share his vision, learn from him, which I which I have done, and also bring new ideas to the table as to how we can continue to grow the market. And to give the listeners out there just an idea of some of the authors you represent, I was just touring the office, as I said. We're talking Les Mis, Fantastics, Guys and Dolls. These are just some of the, the great classic shows. Yeah, we, rep- we the company actually, just a little history on the company, was founded by, um, co-founded by Frank Lesser, uh, who your listeners probably know very well, and Don Walker, the orchestrator. So it has a nice heritage, and it's actually especially uh, meaningful to me because my first favorite show that I remember without ever having seen a production of it was Guys and Dolls because my father would play that uh, recording for me uh, over and over, and I just loved it. But so to be sitting here you know, representing uh, the legacy of Frank Lesser is particularly meaningful to me. But in addition to Frank Lesser's shows, we represent Music Man. You know, Meredith Wilson was actually friends with Frank Lesser, so we have that. We represent um, almost all of the Sondheim collection, including West Side Story. We represent Stephen Schwartz's musicals, including your late-produced late uh, Godspell, Pippin. We represent um, many newer shows like Mamma Mia!, the producers, Spring Awakening, another of yours. You're really helping uh, with our marketing and promotion, so we appreciate that. And uh, newer shows like Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. And then smaller off-Broadway shows we take on, things like Murder Ballad. Um, we have the rights to Violet, which is one of the staff favorites here and one of my favorites. It, it's a pretty broad catalog. There are over 400 shows that we uh, of musicals, and a lot of people say, I didn't even know there were that many musicals. Uh, and a lot of them you would not have heard of. But uh, but our job, which we take very seriously, is to perpetuate the life of the lifespan of these shows. And some you won't ever hear of. You know, you can't force people to A, license or B, their customers to come see the show. But um, but we certainly want to give them every opportunity to see it and hear it uh, and, you know, have the opportunity to judge it themselves. So how do you pick a show to be included in that catalog of 400 some of them are some of them are very obvious i mean any show that is uh makes it to broadway is going to come under our scrutiny if you will it's not really scrutiny but we'll go see it uh and we will judge it some are obvious when a show like mamma mia becomes a global hit you say well that would be nice to have in the catalog everyone's going to want to do that so for the most part that's what we're looking at are shows that have been produced somewhere if it's been produced at a local high school only, meaning someone has written a show and they've put it up somewhere in a small part of the country or somewhere else. It's very hard for us to take it on. We might track it the way a record company might say, oh, that band in you know rural Georgia seems to be getting some traction. We'll keep an eye on shows and see if there's a trajectory of growth for it. But for us, it's very hard to take on a show that nobody has ever heard of and convince them that by listening to you know a recording, if there is one, and we all know how expensive those are, and reading the script, oh, that's the show they should license instead of something that their audience is going to recognize instantly. So in a general sense, it's about branding and the recognize, rec- recognition factor of the Broadway shows. But there are also shows that um, are branded differently. So for example, we have a collection of kids shows that are based on the Magic Treehouse book series. Magic Treehouse book series, which people who don't have kids or aren't young may not have heard of, has sold over 100 million copies, this series. It's constantly on the uh, New York Times bestseller list. Every kid in America has heard of the protagonists in, uh, in, in Magic Treehouse, Jack and Annie. And they're wonderful stories that actually have an inherent educational component to them. So we thought, well, let's see if there's a way to develop musicals based on these stories that the teachers know, because the teachers love these books, the kids will know. And they have an educational component. So in a middle school, they'll want to put it on. And there are three titles from that series that are uh, often running for the last two years or so and are doing very well. You know, they're holding their own with other junior and kid shows like A Guys and Dolls or an Annie Junior because of the branding. So it's not dissimilar from what I think goes into a producer's thinking is you want quality shows. And they're shows we will take on even if they've failed on Broadway. I say failed. Financially have failed on Broadway. And an example would be something like um, Carolina Change, for example, a show that we all love, 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 love here. And I hate to say we love two Janine Tesori shows, but we are big fans of hers. 
Carolina Change was not a financial success. It has implicit challenges in terms of casting, if the high, you know, high schools wanted to do it or even you know, community theaters. But it's a show that we felt that if we took it on, we could at least shine a spotlight on the show to get people to consider it. And it's done just fine. I mean, it's not going to make the kind of money that another show like Janine wrote, Shrek, will do. But it, we take very seriously our own mandate to preserve musical theater in a way. Uh, not to sound too self-important about it, but a lot of times a show will open, it'll close, the materials get scattered all over, even in today's digital world. Sometimes it's hard to locate the orchestrations, where's the final script. And we, act, we take seriously our responsibility as custodians of the shows we represent to preserve them and then also to promote them for future audiences and generations. But in terms of getting back to your question, as I meander around, we'll look at a show, and certainly there are ones where the authors have always been represented by another company. Probably we're not going to push too hard to go after that. If there are other shows where we represent the author, even if it's not going to be a gangbuster show, we certainly extend a professional courtesy to them because they want their collection all in the same place. But for the most part, then it comes down to what do we think of the show as, as a licensable property? It's something that took me a couple of years to learn is that as an audience member now, you're not just going to enjoy the show, but you're looking and you're saying, okay, this was a great show. Are schools going to be able to do this? Because schools are a big part, volume-wise, of our market. Are community theaters going to be able to do this? Will they want to do it? Does this appeal only to a New York audience, to a New York-centric audience? You know, people uh, at one point were concerned that the producers was too inside, too New York-centric. And the producers have proved to be an outstanding success for us, not just in the U.S., but around the world, including in Germany, which is, was a funny experience to, uh, to attend. But it's about looking at the, what I, it's, the demographics is not the right word, but the elements of a show to say, is this something schools will want to do? If, if you look at Spring Awakening, which is a show obviously uh, running on, on Broadway right now that you've revived very successfully and a uh, great production, one of our concerns when we first started speaking to the authors about it was, and this became kind of the running joke of it was, so there are three groups of adults in the show. There's parents, there's clergy, and there are teachers. And they're all made to look sort of foolish in their behavior. And those are the three groups that choose what show gets done in, in an organization. So we say, how are we going to convince these people? But we looked deeper and said, well, schools do read the play. Um, it is young people in the show. And one thing we've learned here is that young performers love playing young performers, young, young roles. So West Side Story plays very well because that's right in the perfect age group. Spelling Bee plays really well um, because they're playing high school students. But then you look at it and you say, well... There's a lot of explicit sexuality in it. There are issues about church. There are issues about religion. Let's talk to the authors about this, because what we never want to do is encourage someone to neuter or somehow, you know, uh, sterilize their show. But there may be certain tweaks that could be made that will make it more accessible to our audiences around the country. So, for example, in, um, in Spring Awakening, we had a group, uh, a high school group in Pennsylvania that did a production of it. And we asked the teacher, we said, we'd like you to uh, let us know what changes you would make to the show that would allow your school board and your parent, teacher, organization, everyone to accept this. And it was a pretty open-minded community. He's actually reputed for that. It's a teacher named Lou Volpe, who a book was written about uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, I think it's called High School High. But um, he did that. He was reluctant to do it. He said, I read my contract. I'm not allowed to change the music, the lyrics, or anything. I said, we're giving you permission. You're going to be submitting this directly to Stephen Sater and Duncan Sheik. Then he got very nervous because he said he respected the piece so much. But he was kind enough to go through. And there were about 10 or 11 things that he said, if I can get rid of this language here, obviously there's a song totally effed, which he had concern. He, he didn't have concerns about, but he thought other schools might. And that was a very obvious one. But most of the things in the show ended up being more directorial about scenes that uh, had explicit sexuality. Could you have this happen off stage while they're saying these lines? Could you have it behind a screen, that last scene of the first act? Could it be behind a screen? And the authors were very amenable to it. There were a couple that they said, we would do this differently. We don't think we should say totally stuck. It didn't work when we saw that done once. And we came up with a list of variations approved by the authors. We're never going to do something without their approval uh, that if schools ask for it, we can offer them. And that made it a more marketable show. It didn't change Spring Awakening. We're never looking to change the, the themes, the spirit of it. But it's just about 
understanding that where MTI lives is sort of the intersection of art and commerce because you are going to be relinquishing your control over the piece. So you can't worry too much about how good is it going to be when a high school in uh, Kansas City does it, but you're getting the show out there and you're letting your work breathe. You know, that, those are the kinds of considerations we have when taking on a show. There are some that just shout out at you when you see a show like, um, like Spelling Bee. It's like, this is perfect. This is wonderful. But what's interesting is the concerns that an audience might have on Broadway or on tour are different than when they're putting on the show themselves. And what I mean by that is when we met with the authors and the producer of Spelling Bee, we pointed out that there is a song that involves an erection. We said, that's going to be a problem. They said, no, no, actually, we've noticed that in, in the audience when we have our tour going around, there are plenty of young people there. They're there with their parents and things like that. It's, it's not a problem. But what we realized is it's not a problem for many parents to take their kids to see something. But it's different when their child is in the show and saying those things and doing those things. That becomes more difficult. And um, one little anecdote I'll tell you is I remember getting a call when we released School Edition of Les Miserables, and a, a parent called and said, um, this is wonderful. You've made it accessible for high schools to do it. They said it's, you know, two hours and five minutes. It's, you know, I didn't know that that was a shortened version, but it's played so well. And I just want to thank you. You know, last year my daughter was Pepper and Annie, and now she's prostitute number three. <laughs> so thank you very much. Um, so, you know, you get, you get calls like that sometimes, which, which highlight the concerns of, of a lot of the country. I mentioned about um, removing obstacles. And one specific example was when we took on the show uh, Little Shop of Horrors, which is actually one of our top shows. And it's one of the top performed shows in high schools these days. It wasn't doing particularly well. And no one really knew why. They knew the show was very good. It hadn't been a Broadway show yet, um, but was successful off-Broadway. It had been a film. So people knew the title. It's a fun title. And no one could figure it out. And one of our staff here, uh, and I should mention most of our staff have backgrounds in theater, either currently or in the past, have been writers, directors, performers, composers. One of them had been a performer who had done what are called skip and wave shows, you know, with those big foam heads. And he had been Garfield the cat at these parade shows and things like that. And he said, I know the problem with, uh, with Little Shop is the plant. You've got the little plant, you've got the bigger plant, you've got a very big plant, and then you've got the gigantic one at the end that someone's got to be inside of. That's really hard for schools or community theaters to build. It's very expensive. They don't have the, the materials to do it. It's very heavy. And they say, oh, I don't want to deal with that. But he said, there was someone who I know who's in Pennsylvania who makes those foam heads that are very lightweight. I'll bet she could make these plants for us. And we looked at it. This was actually before my time, so I shouldn't say we. It's the royal we. MTI looked at it and asked her, can you create a set of these plants? She said, sure. Here's how much it's going to cost. We said, that's fine. We'll do it as a pilot. And the thing was utilized something like 40 weeks out of 52 weeks the first year. We said, we need four more sets. We need 10 more sets. And now it's, I know it's in the teens, the number of sets there are that, A, we don't make really any money on because we don't touch them. She ships them out takes them back, cleans them out because the kids are wearing these on their heads and their health restrictions and all that. But what it's done is it's increased the, um, the licensing activity on that show by over 400%. So it's really, like I said, coming in and saying, what are the obstacles that someone will have to do a show? And in particular, this show. And some of them you can't remove. It could be casting issues. You know, if it's an, if it's an all-male show and they've got an all-girl uh, cast, you're not going to be able to convince them. Some of them, sometimes there's uh, race-specific casting that they can't do. You can't necessarily solve that, but we certainly speak with the authors. We speak internally about it, and we try to figure out the ways to make it just that much easier so there's another, we take away the reasons to say no so that our authors' shows will be out there a little bit more. What's been the biggest surprise title for you of the last several years where you're like, oh, we're going to take this because of our relationship or mm -hmm. because we, we think it's important, but we don't think it's going to license that well that has su surprised you the most. You know, one of them is um, one of them is Spelling Bee. Not that we didn't think it was going to do so well, but it ended up being one of our like top three shows the year that it was released. It was in such demand, and it continues to be, that that was a surprise only because it, it ran for a nice run on Broadway. You know, it was off Broadway before that. We just didn't know how well known the title was around the country. And we did a big marketing push for it. But I think that it's a good indication of something we've seen is that the title does matter of a show. And 
you know, 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee sounds like something that's fun. I remember hearing about it when it was up in Barrington and thinking, oh, that sounds like something I'd want to see. Just as just as a you know casual observer, that really played very well. Another one that did very well, I'm not sure it's a surprise because it is well branded, was was Shrek. Because people would look at that and say, oh, well, that show really didn't do well financially on Broadway. It didn't play very long. But frankly, the audience that that the audiences that I saw at the in the theater were really enjoying the show, and David Lindsay Bear and Janine, you know, worked very hard to give us the the, you know, the the tightest version of it that was available, and it also showed the, just the power of brand because the Shrek movies uh, are just so well branded, you know, you know as well as I do that when when we work in theater, particularly in New York, you're inundated with all the messaging about Broadway, and so you assume you you one might assume well the whole world knows what this is. And a show that could play many years here, you might go to Nevada, run into someone and say, hey, what did you hear about Book of Mormon? And until the tour went around, they may not have even heard of it, even though it was this huge, or Hamilton. I guarantee you that there are people who are even casual theater goers, perhaps, or subscribers who they may have heard of Hamilton, but if they're not living in, in New York or uh, or they're living under a rock, maybe at that point, at this point, but have never heard of it. So the virtues that I think producers see in movie titles are not uh, false virtues. There is a, you know, there's a, a head start that you get. Whereas if we tried to convince people about this show about an ogre that had never been a motion picture, even if it had merit of its own, it'd be very hard. How long have you been here now? How many years? Uh, 13 years. So in your 13 years, have you seen an increase in the number of licenses or more shows getting done around the world than when we started? Yeah, both both domestically and around the world. There's definitely a growth in the amateur market, which like I said is, I met, you mentioned the high schools and we focus on that a little bit, but there are also about 12,000 community theaters around the country, which is a huge part of the, the market and also bigger dollars for each license in terms of royalties because they're charging uh, generally... Uh, admission for the tickets, whereas a lot of schools don't. They play longer runs than a high school might, which might only play a few performances over a couple of weekends. You know, one of the things that's interesting from the amateur side, especially, is uh, this growth, we think, is, is it dates back, dates way, way back to um, 10 years ago when High School Musical came out. And High School Musical was this juggernaut of a cultural phenomenon in, in terms of Disney and their uh, Disney Channel, but then it became motion pictures, live concerts, ice show, tour, everything having to do with High School Musical. I mean, at least in my limited experience, it happened with when Titanic, the movie came out. That was just a cultural phenomenon. It was on the radio, it was in the movies. It was people were seeing it 10 times. High School Musical was the same thing. And it seems like these things go every 10 years or so. But um, Frozen is another example of that where there's and they, those two happen to be Disney properties. But High School Musical was such a huge phenomenon that what it did, in my view, was because of its themes of here's this jock who is also a singer and that's OK. And some of the some of the themes in there are just about accept, generally accepts generally accepting each other for who they are. But there's this history. I remember on the Brady Bunch growing up watching that. And there was a, one episode where Bobby or I think it might have been Peter wanted to be a singer and everyone kept calling him a sissy for being a singer. And there's this history of that. And I think everyone who knows theater knows that. High School Musical all of a sudden opened the door for young people, especially male performers, to say, hey, I could be a Zac Efron and get up there on stage and be in my musical. Glee certainly helped it. Uh, America's Got Talent uh, before that idol, American Idol, uh, all these or The Voice now, all these shows have guys up there singing and have added to the acceptance factor of performing. And, you know, I think you know, we can think, talk more broadly about, you know, the social media and, you know, everyone's performing for everyone. Actually, they're putting on some kind of show through Instagram or through uh, Facebook or whatever media they're using to play a part. It could be the part of themselves or in these instances, it's an opportunity for people to get up on stage and not feel like they're going to be made fun of. So I think there's definitely been more of an acceptance of it, which leads more people to want to do it, which leads to more organizations wanting to do it. And uh, there's been a growth on that side. Internationally, I just th I feel that the Broadway market has done a great job of, of promoting itself internationally. And as, as your blog has pointed out, the number of, uh, of tourists that are coming to see shows, the percentage has continued to grow. It's a very large percentage. Those people go home having seen American musical theater 
And then they're going to want to see it at home also. So that's really helped us. And because we license in about 55 countries each year, it's helped us internationally. So the typical path to a license seems to be when I've done a a new show on Broadway, it opens uh, and then we start talking to all the licensing companies, right? If there's a relationship, if there's not a relationship, uh, then a deal is made. And then the big question is, when are we going to release those rights? So we get, of course, the licensing company just hopefully for the producer and investor's sake, just paid a giant advance for it. And they want to start recouping that advance and getting that out there to the world. And traditionally, producers are like, no, 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 you can't release those rights. It's too soon. We're still running. What do you think is the right period of time? Can a show release when it's running on Broadway or off Broadway? Should it? Should it wait? Well, actually, um, it's not to use a cliche, but it's an age old question. And the conventional wisdom is you want to be the only game in town. And it's some of those conventional wisdoms make a lot of sense. And some of them have been a little bit turned on their heads. So not to get off the subject, but just as an example, the conventional wisdom for a producer or even a theater owner is don't let a movie be made of your show while it's still running. Because in the old days, why would you pay $40 for a ticket when you can pay $3 for a movie ticket? And, you know, Chicago was probably a big one that turned that on its head. Even Phantom, which was not a movie that was particularly well received, boosted the box office um, on Broadway and uh, for their tour. So, you know, there are those conventional wisdoms we stick to because that's what we did the last time, but sometimes they they don't necessarily hold up over time. So with regard to what you just asked, uh, the timing of releasing the rights, the conventional wisdom is, yes, you want to be the only game in town, either here, this town, or whatever town is on your tour route. The answer to your question is it varies based on the show. Obviously, a lot of shows close quickly. You want to get the show out there as quickly as possible, licensing-wise, because you want to carry the halo. There would be a little bit of a black eye from it closing quickly on Broadway. But you want to carry the halo of the Broadway marketing to say, straight from Broadway, we can now make this available to you. But what we've also found, and this is a really important point, especially in light of recent events where I saw that uh, they're going to be licensing, I don't know if you know this, but they're going to be licensing School of Rock to high schools before it opens on Broadway. And they made that announcement. And we, we thought that was just a, a wonderful, wonderful idea. Um, we did something similar when Les Mis was beyond a juggernaut. And it was touring around the country. And about 15 years ago, the idea came up, what if we made this available to high schools? Only high schools. And, and, and with a lot of restrictions. So you couldn't have actors' equity performers in it, even if they were high school age. There was an age limitation, limit on number of seats, number of performances, so no one could take a loophole and then run it at the Amundsen, you know, or something like that. But for high schools to do Les Mis, and the tour was still out, and Alan Wasser, who was the general manager of that tour, uh, was concerned, understandably, because he said, you're going to cannibalize my tour. My, my presenters are not going to like having a high school down the block, having done this. It's, it's going to be a disaster. <laughs> and, you know, Cameron McIntosh and uh, Alan Bublil and Claude Michel Schoenberg thought more about it and said, well, let's just try it. Let's just see what happens. And we did create the school edition that started to license. And Alan Wasser became a very quick convert. And he always says, if you ever need someone to testify, I will stand up like uh, nicely, nicely and uh, give testimony. He said that the tour ended up running a lot longer because the high schools that did it became a feeder because the students who were in it wanted to go see the, the show done professionally in their market. They brought their parents because they wanted to point out to their parents, wasn't I better as Javert than this guy? And, you know, it built it built an audience for them. So based on that experience, um, at the tail end of the, I think it was the last uh, part of the Rent tour that Kevin and Jeffrey put out, they said to us, we want you to start licensing Rent in those markets where we're going to be going because we think that that will promote ticket sales. And I think it did. So the answer is there's no right time. I think for most shows, you have the Broadway run, you'll have a tour. The Broadway run could be running uh, concurrently with the tour, but a lot of times Broadway will close, the tour will then follow that. Uh, you know, every show has its own lifeline. But what we'll usually do is we'll have a, a smooth handoff with the tour producer or the producers of the Broadway production to say, you know, you're finishing up on Broadway, you announced your closing. If we do a significant production in California, let's say, or somewhere that's not right near here within 100 miles of New York City, uh, it's not going to cannibalize your audience for the next six months if you know that the the end is near. 
or uh, if a tour is finishing up in the Pacific Northwest and we have an opportunity to license Actors Playhouse in Coral Gables, Florida, it's in the in the show's best interest to have that production go forward because that could be a significant royalty for the authors, a good way to kick off licensing of the show, and it won't interfere with the tour. So one thing I will um, I will point out to you is you talk about the advance that we pay. Some shows there is no advance, some shows it's sizable. Of course, we want to make that advance back, but we're not particularly eager or aggressive about that because one thing that authors that we work with realize is we're in this for the very long term, often much longer than the producers are in it. We're in it for probably 20 years. We are interested in the long-term best interest of that property. So if we jump ahead and do something that would hurt a tour, well, the word's going to get out that the tour didn't do well, and that hurts the property, even if it might have made $100,000 of royalties. On the other hand, if a tour is going around kind of limping around and they say, well, we, we're hoping against hope that we might get Philadelphia for, two, for a weekend. Can you hold that for us? And we might have an opportunity to do a production at Walnut Street. Instead of that tour going there, we would say to them, let's talk to the rights holders and see which they would rather have. Because this could be a multi-hundred-thousand-dollar license that would play in Philadelphia and at a reputable theater. Not just reputable, but a highly regarded theater like Walnut Street. And if they do it, other regionals will say, oh, this is a show that didn't do great on tour. But look, Walnut Street did it. Their audiences loved it. It was a tremendous financial success. I'm going to take a second look at this show. And that has happened. So there's no hard, fast answer. You're right. Usually you want to let the producer have the exclusive rights to it. But it's also a discussion that most producers are eager to engage in because keeping in mind something you and I discussed earlier, the producer continues to participate in most cases, as a, uh, a subsidiary rights participant. So when MTI licenses the show, the producer will share in that revenue along with the, the authors. So when I was uh, 18 years old and did a community theater production of No No Nanette at uh, the Theater at the Mount uh, in Gardner, Massachusetts, big shout out there, I got a score and a script that looked like it had been around for about 65 years there were pencil marks that were tried to be you know attempted to be erased that weren't and that's all that i got i got this crappy little thing and then we were told we had to erase i mean it was a mess talk to, and technology obviously has changed a lot and it seems to me that the resources you can provide now are different talk to me about what a typical package for me if i'm a community theater renting Hairspray, for example, what I is available to me now. Um, okay, well, the, first of all, the good news was it sounds like because you had to erase the pencil marks, it was at least a licensed production. Because usually someone could say, I did a production of uh, Fiddler in camp and it was on mimeographed paper. So, the first question, what, where did they get a mimeograph, uh, mimeograph machine? But uh, so I'm glad it was licensed. But what we provide is what it, we call it the MTI standard set of materials. So, first of all, the materials are taken from the authors and the pit often, and they really need to be cleaned up a lot because, uh, as you've seen, during rehearsals, during previews, even during the run of the show, there are changes made, notations made, and the materials are often a mess. And we work with the copyists to get them into pristine form because unlike first-class productions, you don't have the author's ear. You don't necessarily even have a music director or anyone that can uh, decipher all of those materials. So we really take pride in how the materials look. Depending on the cast size, let's say it's Hairspray, and if it's, let's just say it's a cast of 24 people, we'll send out libretto vocal books, which each of the, uh, the actors is given, along with a piano vocal score or a piano conductor score or both. Uh, some shows we have a full score, uh, which I didn't know what that was, not being a musician, but the gigantic the page that has all of the parts on each page for your listeners who also are ignorant and don't want to admit it. And then we will have the individual orchestral parts. So it might be a 12-piece orchestration or a 14-piece orchestration, and we'll send those out. Those are a different size than the, uh, than the scripts. Uh, those are rented, so they do need to be taken care of and not, uh, not written on an ink or in magic marker, or you're not supposed to lay your tuna fish sandwich on it during lunch. So yes, those do need to be returned. But what we've been able to do is um, acknowledging the world we live in and that people want, you know, well, they want fast now and free for most things, but at least fast and uh, now uh, or high quality and fast. We realize that digital printing is something that will, uh, or digital distribution is going to be in the future. It is in our future, whether that's one year, five years or 10 years, 
it's not going to be 10 years. It's going to be less than that. But where we're a little bit different than um, the other media, like books or music or uh, or movies, is that the preparation for a show requires walking around on stage with this thing. It's not something you do privately in your room or in your office and you hold a Kindle. A, a lot of people don't have a tablet yet. As much as the prices are coming down, as Amazon just announced a $50 one, someday soon people will have them. The other thing is, even if they had them, right now the technology for writing and making notes on them is not particularly good. So for performers, we haven't had a lot of demand for the scripts to be available for kids. I say kids, but for any performers, professional theaters or anyone, to have it digitally in their hand right now. Musicians, I've noticed, do have a special uh, kind of tablet that they use more when I've seen piano players doing it, not full orchestras. Uh, but when I've seen uh, a cabaret show, a piano player may have it for that uh, for that song set. But what, where we do see that people want it is for perusals. Perusals are where we send people a viewing copy of the script. And we used to be we'd mail it to them, you know, one or two or three copies of different shows so that they could review it. They could then share it with their artistic directors, with their board or whoever the, uh, are the decision makers. And those, there's no reason not to give it to them right away because they're sitting behind their desk. So we've made available for the last few years um, electronic perusals so that if someone wants it right now and they call up, we send them a link. They can look at it. They're not able to print it unless they get special permission. But part of that is you know, trying to keep control of the intellectual property. Nothing is more gratifying than when an author says, I tried to find a copy of my show script online. I couldn't find it anywhere. Can you send me a copy? It's like, oh, good. We're, we're keeping tabs on these things or keeping, uh, keeping them under wraps a little bit. But it's also finding the balance between keeping it under wraps, but also wanting people to read these things. You know, we don't charge a lot of money. A lot of shows when we're really trying to promote them, will have free perusals because we say, just read it. You're going to love this show. We're willing to give you the, the perusal for free electronically or we'll mail it to you. So when we do a new release, we often have a window of time where we say, just take it and read it. We want you to examine this, you know, like a no risk offer that you see on late night television. Just you may never, never heard of Murder Ballad. You may never have heard of Scottsboro Boys. Uh, you know, there are a lot of them that people, when they do read it, will say either A, that was really interesting. No, thank you. But I really like these authors. Or they may say this is really interesting. I didn't think of it for my main stage, but I have also have a black box theater. This would be perfect for it. Our job, as I've said, is you can't force someone to like something. But what I learned from the music business is you do everything you can to give them a chance to make a decision about it. And I think that's where MTI, you know, kind of distinguishes itself is through its marketing and getting the word of these titles out there so that people will consider them. And what about marketing? Because one of the things, look, I think of every production of my show as a mini franchise. So if I put up the mothership McDonald's, I want the other ones ideally to look somewhat like mine on stage and off and one of the things that i've been disappointed with is when i've seen logos of my shows or marketing materials that doesn't at all represent what we've worked so hard tested so much spent so much money on getting just right do you help these productions with some of the marketing provide logos blurbs yeah we do we we, we pro our, our job every day that we come in is we say how can we help remove the obstacles that people have to putting on a show it's not, this is not like buying a, a CD or downloading a, an album or buying a book. That's simple. And if you regret it later, you spend $10 and, you know, too bad. This is an endeavor that takes a lot of work, a lot of people, a lot of time, a lot of money. Um, I wish it was easier sometimes, but you're, you can't just force people to say, oh, I want to put on a show. And, you know, they, they, they know what it, they're biting off when they do that. So we want to remove all the obstacles. And one of the obstacles, which you just pointed out, is how do I get a logo for this thing? Do we have to make it? You know, some people want to make their own. It's a good, I'm glad you brought it up because it's something that I would like producers to be uh, aware of. A lot of things uh, that we deal with are considered way down the road when you and other producers are producing a show on Broadway. So there are songs, there are shows that use catalog songs. And when you get the rights, you get them for Broadway and maybe a producer says, oh, I don't need them for the stock and amateur market. I'm not going to deal with the music publishers on that right now. When it gets to us, it's time to pay the piper and it's, uh, wait, you never got the rights for those songs? Or even on a logo, you, you may have gotten the rights from your marketing company to use it on Broadway and on tour, but you don't own the logo, which I would encourage every producer to own their logo or the producer and the authors to own the logo somehow outright up front. Because when it comes to us, 
that logo may have become iconic at that point. And if we then go to the marketing company and say, we want this logo, A, they may charge a significant fee for it, which, you know, is uh, unfortunate. They also, a lot of these, these logos I've discovered often have multiple components. So there's the title treatment that the, um, that the marketing company may have created, but there may be a background photograph of a park scene. There may be faces of people in there that are not the actors in the show, but there are faces for some reason. Those rights are all controlled and in a limited way sometimes so that it comes to us and they say, oh, well, we don't have the right to that photograph in the background. It's like, why didn't you get that up front? <laughs> and the marketing company doesn't even have the rights to it, so it becomes another negotiation. That's more detail than anyone who's listening would probably want, but the short answer is two things. One is we do try to get the logos from the producers and we deliver them to the customers so that they can use them in their production. It's also helpful to us in marketing the show so when someone opens our catalog and they see the Mamma Mia logo, they recognize that it's the Mamma Mia logo. But the other part of it is, uh, whether, whether it's logos, you know, considering the rights in music materials, you know, orchestrators, arrangers have certain ongoing rights sometimes that are negotiated. A lot of those things, I think what goes through people's minds are we're trying to get Broadway, the Broadway show up and running. These other things, fine, we'll deal with it later. We'll deal with it later. And as you know, a lot of agreements don't even get signed by the time a Broadway show opens. It's, we'll deal with it later. And the good news is we're all dealing with the same group of people very often. And so hopefully everyone's dealing honorably with each other and it does get done. But the more things you can look at and say, am I going to know? Am I going to need this down the road? Am I going to need the logo? Am I going to need a design that's this? Am I going to need those music materials down the road? And should we buy them out now? The answer is often, at least from our point of view, yes. Uh, so I would encourage all producers and authors to, to think about those things carefully up front rather than having to deal with it later on. Very, very wise words. I will reiterate that own your logo. I have not owned my logo a few times and gotten into some trouble. So it's one of the things I insist on going forward with all my shows. Okay, last question my genie question. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin, you represent all the Disney we do. properties, we do, right? Yes. So at some point, the genie from Aladdin will be in this office and he's going to come and say, thank you so much, Drew, for doing such great work in getting me out into the world uh, and generating lots of revenue for my parent company and for my authors and for those, or that original investor, Mickey Mouse himself. <laughs> I want to grant you one wish. One wish. What's the one thing that drives you so crazy about Broadway that makes you angry, that could keep you up at night, that you would want this genie to change with the snap of a finger? And you only get one thing. What would you wish that genie to change? And you can't wish for more wishes, right? No more wishing for more wishes. I'm not even going to tell you who did that. Samuel French asked for more wishes, so we didn't (laughs) let that happen. (laughs) Anything about Broadway, the ecosystem of Broadway that you that you could want to ch- would want to change? Okay, I think I got it. Can I articulate after I give you the wish why I said that? Yes, of oh, course. Okay. Please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I guess the wish wish that I would have, based on the experience I've had here at MTI, and also just as a theater goer growing up my whole life here in New York, is my wish would be that every person, particularly young people would have the opportunity to step foot in a theater and see a live show at any point. Because in my own experience, I've seen the entertainment that it brings, but I've also seen through the licensing, because we do see a lot of the productions that we license, of, and some of them are wonderful and some of them are terrible, but all of them have one thing in common, is that they, they change people's lives, the audience that sees it, as well as the people who are in it. And performing on stage is something that is very rare. It's something that's done collaboratively by kids as well as adults. It's done collaboratively in a non-competitive way. Like the other collaboration that most people experience in school, for example, is sports. That's generally not co-ed and it's usually competitive. This is a great opportunity for people to enjoy the show, to learn from the show. People learn through experiential learning. When they do a show like Annie, they actually are learning about the Great Depression. They don't realize that they're learning about who Herbert Hoover was, but they are an FDR. Um, and and they're taking positive risks. So I think that if that wish were granted, that uh, you know it's kind of the try it, you'll like it kind of thing, people don't even realize what they're gaining, for, how much they're gaining from musical theater and theater in general. And not to, uh, to be too philosophical, but with young kids my, of my own, 
I also see the uh, the lack of live connection that people have by because of digital the dig- digital world that we live in. Um, the connection that the importance of the connection that people have with live performers with each other and with audiences um, has become more and more vital to people, whether they consciously realize it or not, whether it's going to live concerts or live performances of musical theater. I think just getting someone in the door once will have them will make a lifelong theater goer of them. I totally agree and was just sitting here thinking about that comment about the comparison to sports, yet the theater isn't competitive like sports are competitive. So it's that same collaborative feeling, but a totally different one. Very insightful uh, comment there. I want to thank you so much for this. And thank you also for the incredible work that you do. We talk a lot about audience development in many a conference room uh, in this business. How do we get more people going to the theater in the future? And the number one answer is really what you just said, getting people to do shows as young people Getting people to participate, as the NEA study has said time and time again, is the number one way to create theater goers in the future. So thank you for everything you're doing to continue to get more and more shows happening. My pleasure. Thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you next time. Hope you enjoyed the podcast, everybody. Don't forget this Thursday, December 10th, 8 o'clock, the live stream of Daddy Long Legs, the first ever and tell everybody you know let's get as many people watching this thing as possible and create a little ruckus daddylonglegsmusical.com backslash live stream daddylonglegsmusical.com backslash live stream thanks so much everybody Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.